Hello and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we'll be speaking to Roger Rashi of Alternatives about last weekend's conference in Montreal on climate justice and ecological alternatives. We'll hear from Sean Devlin, one of the creators of the dynamic new website shitharperdid.com, and writer and scholar Jim Silver will speak about his recent book about poverty and public housing in Canada. First, the alert headlines for the week of April 21st, 2011. According to an Angus Reid poll, the New Democrats begin the fourth week of the campaign tied with the Liberals for second place, but their support could collapse by the time voters go to the polls. The poll shows one quarter of Canadians say they would vote for the New Democrats, an increase of four percentage points since early this month. That puts the party in a tie for second place with the Liberals, who are also at 25% after seeing their support drop by two percentage points over the same period. The Conservatives remain in first place with 36% of the support, down by two percentage points, but still a double-digit lead. Much of the NDP growth in support also comes from Quebec, where the NDP is at 26%. The Sun News Network launched on April 18th, stoking controversy by broadcasting cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad that had sparked anger from Muslims worldwide after they were published in a Danish newspaper in 2005. Host Ezra Levant showed the cartoons in the TV station's first hour as part of a segment about freedom of speech on the premiere of his show. Chris Waddell, director of the School of Journalism at Carleton University, said there was no reason to air the cartoons on television except to appeal to sensationalism. Hype around the new news network started building last June when Quebecor announced plans to start a 24-hour news network to compete with CBC News Network and CTV's News Channel. At the time, critics dubbed the new network Fox News North. The U.S. State Department acknowledged Monday it has been funding opponents of Syrian President Bashar Assad following the release of secret diplomatic cables obtained by WikiLeaks that document the funding. The files show that up to $6.3 million U.S. was funneled to the Movement for Justice and Development, a London-based dissident organization that operates the Barada TV satellite channel which broadcasts anti-government news into Syria. Another $6 million went to support a variety of initiatives, including training for journalists and activists, between 2006 and 2010. Whistleblower website WikiLeaks provided the cables to the Washington Post newspaper, which first reported on them. The files are part of a haul of 251,000 secret U.S. diplomatic documents the website says it has obtained. On Monday... More than 5,000 anti-government protesters in Syria took over the main square of the country's third largest city, vowing to occupy the site until Assad is ousted and defying authorities who warn they will not be forced into reforms. Plans to exploit Iraq's oil reserves were discussed by British government ministers and the world's largest oil companies the year before Britain took a leading role in invading Iraq, government documents show. The papers, revealed in The Independent newspaper, raised new questions over Britain's involvement in the war, which had divided Tony Blair's cabinet and was voted through only after his claims that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. 
Documents show that then-Trade Minister Lady Simons agreed to lobby the Bush administration on BP's behalf because the oil giant feared it was being locked out of deals that Washington was quietly striking with the U.S., French, and Russian governments and their energy firms. In the USA, the Republican-controlled House has approved a budget measure that would cut $5.8 trillion in spending over the next decade. The bill would gut Medicare and Medicaid programs serving the elderly and the poor while granting tax cuts to top-earning individuals and corporations. Democrats say the measure has no chance of passing the Senate. Republicans plan to leverage the measure in talks on reducing the deficit. On Sunday, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner says he is confident Congress will vote to raise the federal debt limit. Georgia has become the first state to pass an anti-immigrant law modeled on the measure approved in Arizona last year. The legislation would mandate law enforcement officers to check the immigration status of suspects if officers believe they have probable cause. Republican Governor Nathan Deal has vowed to sign it into law. Public health specialist and human rights activist in India, Dr. Biniak Sen, has been freed after the Supreme Court granted him bail last week. Dr. Sen was released from a prison on the condition that he would surrender his passport and attend court whenever he was summoned. He was found guilty of carrying messages and setting up bank accounts for Maoist rebels who are active in large parts of India. In December, a court sentenced him to life in prison for helping the rebels. Mr. Sen has denied the charges. Cuba says it will allow people to buy and sell their homes for the first time since the communist revolution in 1959. For the past 50 years, Cubans have only been allowed to pass on their homes to their children or to swap them through a complicated and often corrupt system. The move was decided during the first Congress held by the ruling Communist Party in 14 years, aimed at breathing new life into the communist system. No details were given on how the new property sales could work. Cuban President Raul Castro warned that concentration of property would not be allowed. During the Congress, President Castro also said top political positions should be limited to two five-year terms. The United States has reportedly launched an intense search for a country that would be willing to take in embattled Libyan strongman Muammar Gaddafi. Three Obama administration officials have told the New York Times that the U.S. and its allies have quietly begun an intense search for a country to provide a haven for the Libyan leader. It is hoped a foreign refugee would be incentive enough for Mr. Gaddafi to abandon his stronghold in Tripoli. The effort is complicated, however, by the prospect of international criminal court action against Gaddafi. According to the U.S. officials, one possibility is to find a nation that is not a signatory to an international treaty that would require it to turn Mr. Gaddafi over for trial. The World Bank says the rising cost of food has pushed 44 million people below the poverty line. The bank's latest report blames rising fuel costs and environmental disasters for the spiraling cost of food, which it says is also contributing to the unrest in the Middle East and Northern Africa. World Bank President Robert Zoelik says the cost of food is entering a danger zone. The World Bank's annual index shows global food prices have soared 36% in 12 months, adding a further 44 million people to the 1.2 billion who live in extreme poverty. The lead author of the report says even small price rises hurt poor people in Africa and Asia who already spend 70% of their income on food. 
The World Bank says prices are about as high as they were during the 2008 food crisis. Those were the alert headlines for the week of April 21, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of April 21, 2011. Last week, the Conservative Party presented a legal challenge to disqualify votes cast by University of Guelph students at an on-campus polling station on the grounds that these special ballots are illegal. While Elections Canada decided to validate these votes, they have also moved to shut down special ballot poll stations on university campuses across the country. Aside from participating in any vote mob happening on your campus, you should send a message to the Commissioner of Elections Canada demanding that campus special ballot locations be reinstated. To send your message and to find more information on vote mobs happening in your city, go to leadnow.ca. The Boreal Forest Network, Council of Canadians, and the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives are hosting a free Earth Day celebration at the Fort Garry Hotel in Winnipeg. The keynote speaker will be Maude Barlow, National Chairperson of the Council of Canadians. The evening begins at 7 o'clock p.m. And just a reminder, Earth Day is Friday, April 22nd. The seventh-generation Walk for Mother Earth in Winnipeg will feature speakers, music, spoken word, and children's activities. Meet at Central Park in the West End at 10.30 a.m. for these activities. The march will begin at 1.30 and will end up at the Forks with a free picnic. The third Toronto People's Assembly on Climate Justice will be held on April 23rd at the Ryerson University Student Centre. To achieve the overall goal of realizing an inclusive, united and empowered climate justice movement in Toronto, this meeting will plan a large-scale collective action, explore the intersection between spirituality and climate justice, share stories of resistance, struggle and victory, and contribute to the creation of a climate justice popular consultation. The People's Assembly will begin at 10 o'clock a.m. and admission is pay what you can. The Palestinian Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions National Committee has launched an international campaign to stop the Jewish National Fund and strip it of its official charity status. The JNF is instrumental in dispossessing indigenous Palestinians from their land, preventing Palestinian citizens of Israel from owning or leasing over 90% of land in Israel and literally covering up ethnically cleansed Palestinian villages by planting trees on top of and around the land. To sign the JNF call for action and to find out about more opportunities to stop the JNF, go to www.stopthejnf.org. May Day is fast approaching, and this year will be the day before a federal election. In Ottawa, meet at Parliament Hill at 1 o'clock p.m. and join national and district labor organizations to demand an accountable government for deteriorating wages, working conditions, benefits, and pensions. A rally organized by No One Is Illegal Toronto will start at 1 o'clock p.m. with a march to follow. Meet at the corner of Queen and Jameson in Toronto to defend worker rights and demand status for all. In Winnipeg, meet at City Hall at 1 o'clock p.m. The third conference on the impact of Canadian mining on local communities throughout the world is set to take place May 6th to 8th in Toronto. Mining Injustice, Confronting Corporate Impunity, will feature several keynote speakers and workshops organized along themes of gendered violence, militarization, indigenous perspectives, labor rights, and environmental effects. The conference will be held at Sydney Smith Hall, room 2117 at the University of Toronto.
For more information, go to the Mining Injustice Solidarity Network's website at solidarityresponse.net. The Rebels Feminist Movement is inviting all young women between 14 and 35 years of age to the second Pan-Canadian Young Feminist Gathering. This gathering is a great opportunity for young women to learn about the varied understandings of feminism, to share struggles and discuss strategies of resistance, and create solidarity among young feminists in Canada. The gathering will be held in Winnipeg from May 20th to 23rd. For more information, go to rebels.org. That's all for Around the Left for the week of April 21st, 2011. Last weekend in Montreal, Canadian Dimension magazine, together with Alternatives, held a conference on climate justice and ecological alternatives. To talk about the conference, Alert contacted at his home in Montreal, Roger Rashi. Roger is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. He works with Alternative and is a founding member of Quebec Solidaire. So, Roger, welcome to Alert. Hi. Okay, Roger, to start off, could you uh, give our, our listeners a quick rundown of, of the topics that were covered at the conference? Oh, there were a variety of topics. Um, I would say the overarching one, the, the, the most general one, the general thread running through the conference um, was how to follow up after the Cochabamba World People's Conference a year ago in Bolivia, uh, what we could draw from that conference and how we could apply some of these principles in our own struggles here, in our own endeavors here uh, to fight for environmental justice. Okay. So uh, the, the, the reason the, the, that's the reason the conference is called Cochabamba Plus One. Exactly, uh, because this is a, practically... To the day, a year after the, uh, the first Cochabamba conference, the one that was held in Bolivia in 2010. So this was a way of marking the anniversary, but also taking stock what has happened since then and where are we going um, on international negotiations, on climate negotiations. Now, Durban is coming up in November, where uh, this is a United Nations um, summit negotiation again. And then next year, there's Rio Plus 20. And these will be key events uh, for trying to, again, get some action worldwide in combating uh, global warming. At the same time, because this was a great, uh, if not invention, the great discovery or the great proposal that Cochabamba made, uh, the idea is to continue mobilizing the social movements, continue mobilizing ecological groups, but also social justice groups, trade unions, cooperatives, all those who are affected uh, by climate change and all those who want to fight for a more healthy planet to get involved in a common struggle and put pressure mm-hmm. on the negotiators, put pressure especially on those coming from uh, uh, the uh, more wealthy countries, the global north, mm-hmm. uh, especially the United States, which has been holding back the whole process. So would you say the rationale behind this whole process stems from uh, the, the idea that the people's voices just aren't being heard at these major summits? That, it's, uh, that there's no real... Absolutely. The idea is to make the people's voice heard at the summit, but also make sure that for all those who stay back home, and this is a vast majority of people who cannot afford to go summit hopping, to also organize activities right where they are, where people live, 
where they work, uh, where they, uh, you know, where they spend their time. So, uh, you see, Cochabamba has a double appeal, is it not only to put pressure on those who are negotiating uh, at those summits, but especially to continuously mobilize people in an ongoing struggle so that there's a big worldwide movement uh, on issues of, uh, of climate. Now, could you, uh, getting back to the conference itself, uh, were there any uh, of the, uh, the speakers uh, in particular that uh, made a, a real impression? There were so many good speakers. There were almost 40 speakers, 10 panels, and the topics were um, very interesting. Uh, they went from the question of industrial conversion, uh, how to get to a carbon-free economy, uh, how to fight the tar sands or shale gas exploration in Quebec, uh, opposing false solutions to, uh, um, you know, to global warming uh, and climate change. False how solutions to build such North as south uh, dialogue, collaboration, and cooperation, etc. So the topics were uh, very varied, diverse. And the speakers were numerous, as you can see. But I would say there's three or four speakers that stood up, uh, uh, stood out. Um, Pablo Salon, the, ambas- the Bolivian ambassador, uh, in his keynote address uh, was tremendous. Uh, I think he indicated uh, how to continue mobilizing this kind of movement and put pressure on world leaders, whether at Durban or at Rio uh, plus 20 next year. Maud Barlow made a very spirited speech, you know, she started off in French and then continued in English and called on people to continue mobilizing and develop, uh, you know, bridges um, across Canada between French and English activists on, on climate issues. Um, there were so many other great speakers on, um, on, on various issues. Tony Clark uh, from the Polaris Institute was tremendous on the question of uh, food sovereignty, for example and water security. Um, His intervention was uh, very good, very well received. Um, And I'm just mentioning a few like that, uh, Mm -hmm. but there were so many. So, I mean, it sounds like it must have been very inspirational, um, but uh, taking it to a more practical phase, uh, I'm wondering if if you could just sort of note, like, what are some of the the conclusions you came to? I mean, you mentioned a bit about bridges uh, across the global north, the global south. Uh, Could you maybe elaborate a, a little bit on, on some of these Well, I mean, steps? one of the important aspects of this conference was bringing together also trade union activists from English Canada and Quebec. Uh, was also beginning to exchange uh, between people fighting tar sands and people fighting uh, against shale gas exploration in Quebec. So uh, I think one thing that uh, the participants uh, seem to emphasize is the possibility and the necessity, really, are setting up some kind of a network, maybe informal, but a network nonetheless, to keep in touch with each other, uh, be aware of the various issues that are taken up, and developing means of exchange and communication so we could coordinate our activities at the international level when people go to various international events, but also support each other right here uh, as we fight daily, whether it's the tar sands, whether it's mining, and the negative impact on water, etc. So um, I think this kind of need um, came out loud and clear uh, from the conference. The other aspect that was very strong was that, and, and that was very mobilizing, is that people thought that this was one of the first events of its kind where actually activists 
um, you know, uh, French-speaking activists and English-speaking activists could exchange, could discuss, and could uh, put their experiences together and, and, and find ways of communicating and collaborating in the future. I'm wondering... So those are, I mean, they're modest goals, but at the same time, they're important in order to open the door to future activities. Uh, Roger, the uh, back in the, the late early 80s and the early 90s, I mean, there was the famous Rio summit where people right. came out of that summit very optimistic. And mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if you, you could somehow comfort people who might be cynical since we've known for a long time about the threat to the climate. Yeah. And why, why would people, should feel people feel inspired by what just transpired in, uh, in Montreal? Well, because... You see, rather than just complaining or rather than just waiting until uh, the U.S. changes or points a new negotiator or a new administration comes in, or maybe there's a change of heart in France or Japan decides to finally support this or that aspect of Kyoto, instead of uh, putting our future in the hands of, 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 of the global North leaders who are strictly looking up to the interests of the corporation, what Cochabamba has done, following up with the Copenhagen mobilization, which was a tremendous mobilization in Europe, and continuing with Cancun, you say, look, it's up to every individual, it's up to social organizations, up to civil society organizations to get involved and make a difference. It's no longer just wait for the powers that be to finally move on an issue which is important. It's for us to create the kind of situation that will force them to do what is needed to save the planet. So in that sense, I find this quite uplifting because we're out of the situation of powerlessness where we're just waiting for the results of, of some negotiations in a far-off place. We say, look, let's take the situation in our own hands and let's d- decide to have an impact directly, not only on the negotiations, but also on everyday activities where yeah. we live. Yeah, talking about everyday activities, I know that a lot of our yeah. human industry and activities are, are based on energy. And uh, mm. with the recent uh, problems in Japan uh, with the nuclear, as well as uh, the, uh, the the cost of oil uh, going up, I mean, is there any concerns that might spring from those new realities? Is this uh, well? I mean, these are, if you want, even further examples of the need and the necessity to begin implementing change in a serious fashion. And that means uh, putting more emphasis on renewable energies. And that means uh, blocking, wherever we can, uh, the fossil fuel corporations, you know, the big big oil corporations, for example. That means blocking and preventing new mining, um, you know, attempts in various parts uh, of the country. That would mean blocking and preventing uh, uh, the forest from being devastated. So I think the idea now is no longer uh, to wait and, 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 and appeal for an action by the powers that be, but to impose change. That means, of course, that we have to take these matters in our own hands. And that means, of course, mobilizing, networking, and struggling, and uh, using whatever means, including say, civil disobedience, when need be, Roger Rashi, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Alert and and bringing us up to date on this uh, clearly what was a very uh, exciting and uh, inspiring conference. Thank you for joining us on Alert. Thank you for having me.
And that was uh, Roger Rashi. He is a uh, he works with Alternative and is a founding member of Quebec Solidaire and is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. If you've been following the buzz both online and in the media, one of the smash online hits of this federal election has been the website and YouTube videos of shitharperdid.com. We'll play a short clip from one of the YouTube videos now. He is the first Prime Minister ever to be found in contempt of Parliament. Ever. The contempt of Parliament? What does that even mean? It means in recent years, Stephen Harper has consistently broken rules. Rules designed to keep Canada a democracy. That's why this election was called. Because Prime Minister Stephen Harper violated the democratic rights of Canadian citizens. Like you! Don't believe it? Go to shitharperdid.com. Sean Devlin is a comedian and filmmaker and one of the creators of shitharperdid.com. Alert caught up with Sean in Vancouver. Welcome to Alert Radio, Sean. Hi, Ashley. Thanks for having me. Can you briefly explain the site and the videos for anybody that hasn't seen them and tell us a bit about where this idea for Shit Harper Did came from? Um, sure. Well, the idea originally came from a similar American site that was created in the lead-up to the November midterm elections. Uh, it was a website called what the fuck has Obama done so far dot com and it was basically a list of many of Obama's legislative achievements in his first two years in office and they presented it in a concise package so people could go and realize that despite uh, the common con uh, conception of, of his work thus far he had done some some good things um, so we decided to take that model and apply it to our prime minister um, but use it to highlight the the worst things he's done in his five years in office and on top of that, we wanted to put a lot of humor into it to hopefully attract more attention. So what was your objective in producing it, or how successful has it been in, you, in your mind? Um, well, our objective w was pretty simple. Uh, we were all young people, young artists who were creating this, and we were only concerned with reaching um, the two-thirds of young Canadians who don't vote. And this is the same two-thirds of young Canadians who have no interest in watching the news, and, and that's proven through media research. So our thought was the fact that these people don't vote is probably related to the fact that they're not following, you know, the political events in the country. And we kind of understood that because we kind of find Canadian politics boring. And so we thought if we could target these people and present a five-year history or highlight reel or maybe low-light reel of Mr. Harper's record and do it in a punchy, creative, and entertaining way, uh, maybe we could catch some of these young people up and maybe they would be interested in voting this election. Do you think it's been successful? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we won't know until uh, until Election Day comes in terms of the web traffic. Uh, I mean, so I, know, I know you have a lot of a lot of likes on Facebook and quite a few people following the Facebook group. Yeah, I mean, in the first 72 hours, we got uh, the website received over 4 million page views, which was well beyond our expectations and in fact it crashed our site and uh, we had to, to move hosts um, and we got a lot of media coverage which we hadn't expected um, kind of were embraced by the by the mainstream media for the most part which was very nice and in terms of the Facebook group there's some interesting numbers there so, so we can see there that the majority of our uh, followers are in fact in that demographic 35 and under that we were specifically targeting do you think there will be any way of, of measuring the impact of something like this? Either um, now or after the election or in the future? 
well, I, I guess the, the, the youth turnout, which is, I guess those numbers are provided by Elections Canada, um, that would be that would be one way to measure this, and and we're not the only groups or the only group focusing on young people. There's a lot of groups doing fantastic work, not necessarily taking the same tactic as we are. Um, so I would definitely hope that we would see an increase in in youth turnout compared to the last election, um, and on top of that, hopefully see some uh, some change in the in the government, at least hoping to prevent a majority. Uh, do you have any follow up projects or related projects to this in the works? Um, well, a friend of mine actually said, said the other day that, uh, you know, if, if Harper does win, you guys will probably have a full-time job. <laughs> and uh, as much as we would like to see him defeated, um, we do know that, yes, there will still be need if he's elected to, to keep this work up, to hold him accountable, which, is, which was basically the idea with this, with this site. Um, I think it's important to remember the context here. Uh, Prime Minister Harper was elected in the lowest voter turnout in Canadian history, and he was elected to a minority government. Um, and what that essentially means is he's the prime minister who's had the single weakest mandate to govern in this country's history. So when he wants to do stuff, most Canadians don't agree with it, and that's simply the fact of the matter. And so he has to go about his more controversial actions in very quiet ways. And we tried to raise the profile of some of what he's done, and we hope to do that in the future if he is re-elected. Well, thanks for speaking with us today, Sean, and for uh, coming up with such a creative way to get people thinking about the election. Thanks, Ashley. And, and there's videos coming out one day a week for the next few days, so, so uh, just keep an eye open for it. Wonderful. Alert has been speaking with Sean Devlin, a comedian and filmmaker from Vancouver, who is one of the creators of shitharperdid.com. Public housing projects have uh, been a concern, and there is the perception of them being dangerous places to live. But the uh, author uh, Jim Silver has uh, written a, a book called Good Places to Live, Poverty and Public Housing in Canada. This book has just been launched. To discuss that book, he is here with me, Jim Silver, the professor and director of the Urban and Inner City Studies Program at the University of Winnipeg and a founding member and current board member of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Manitoba. So thanks for joining us here on Alert. Thanks for having me, Michael. Okay, now I know that in your book uh, you you point to the idea that uh, neoliberalism uh, or neoliberal policies have largely contributed to the uh, the deterioration of these uh, public housing projects. Uh, could you maybe explain what you mean by uh, those neoliberal policies and how you see them as contributing? Well, I think from the beginning, people on the ideological right have been opposed to public housing. They believe that uh, housing ought to be produced on a for-profit basis. And in Canada, about 95% of housing is in fact produced by private for-profit developers. But there is a small segment of uh, the housing universe in Canada that's produced on a not-for-profit basis. And in the 60s, as part of urban renewal, uh, large inner-city public housing projects were built. And when they started off, people loved them. They were very, very happy there. But I think that over the years, and particularly over the last 30 years or so, uh, with neoliberal policies being put in place that have the characteristic of reducing the role of government and increasing uh, the role of the private for-profit sector, 
public housing projects have largely been abandoned by the state. Um, in many cases, in the case of Regent Park uh, in Toronto, Canada's first and largest public housing project, particularly, but not only under the Harris government, they simply invested nothing in the maintenance and upkeep of those public housing units. And so they've uh, collapsed uh, around the residents who live there. Uh, in the big public housing projects in Chicago, where the same sort of story holds, the Robert Taylor Homes, which is the biggest public ho- was the biggest public housing project in the world, was totally abandoned by the state. I mean, uh, they didn't even police in there uh, any longer. So naturally, you have had a circumstance in which conditions, physical conditions and social conditions in public housing projects have deteriorated. But this is, in my view, has nothing whatever to do with public housing as such. Uh, my argument is public housing can be a good place to live. Now, you, there have been uh, instances uh, in, in the past where uh, we've seen uh, certain communities uh, like uh, Little Mountain in, in Vancouver, for instance, where people, uh, as you document in the book, were quite happy to uh, to, to live there and, and they were thriving. And yet uh, these areas got redeveloped and uh, what maybe just sort of narrowing it down like what in that instance for example was uh, the the culprit in, in, in taking down the community well that's a really interesting case little mountain was a wonderful place to live and we interviewed uh, a significant number of people who had lived there some who had lived there for 50 years and longer and uh, you, uh, the the view of Little Mountain as a place to live was unanimous. We didn't hear a single negative word. People said this was a wonderful place to raise our families. It's always been safe. It's been well integrated with surrounding communities and so on. So it is the proof positive that public housing can be a good place to live because Little Mountain was a good place to live. Its downfall uh, is that it's located in a beautiful part of Vancouver. Uh, a very, very short subway ride to the airport, a very, very short subway ride to downtown. This was land that was profitable. And when it was turned over to the provincial government and neoliberal uh, government, they saw that they could make more profits out of that land if they got the poor people out of there. So they did that. uh, And they sold the property to a developer, and the developer will build high-rise, expensive condos, and uh, very well-to-do people uh, will move into those condos, and they'll they'll be extremely happy, I am sure, because they're in a beautiful part of Vancouver. But the the people who had lived there, low-income people who had lived there, have been spread throughout uh, Vancouver. And it is a city in which uh, housing, rental housing, low-income rental housing is in very short supply, as it is, by the way, right across Canada. And uh, they're having difficulty finding places to live that are affordable. Okay, so would it be accurate to say that what we're facing here with the the, the collapse of these public uh, housing projects is essentially uh, them being the, the... collateral damage of a war between those who seek to make money from that land and those who seek to live on it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a very, very good uh, assessment of the situation. 
Is land in urban centers exchange value or use value? Is its purpose to make profit or is its purpose to provide a place for people to live? And there has always been conflict in cities over those two ways of thinking about uh, urban land, urban property, and that's exactly what has gone on here. The the urban renewal of the 60s built these public housing projects in what they then called slums that were close to downtown. And as downtowns have been revitalized in neoliberal ways to attract uh, people with money, all of a sudden we have ended up with these big public housing projects right beside high-priced land in revitalized downtowns. So the public housing becomes a remnant of a previous era, a remnant of a, of a Keynesian era, and it's got to go because they can make more profits in other ways. Well, what, these neoliberal governments, I mean, why do they seem to be favoring the developers? Because certainly the, the voters, even in, in the suburban areas, don't I mean, they they feel uh, they they don't want to see their, their 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 the inner city cores decay, and uh, they want they would want to to work as well. Well, in fact, what's happening is that they are revitalizing the inner city cores, but part of what they're doing in doing that is pushing the poor out, and so what you end up with is a geographic space that looks better, and the politicians can pat each other on the bat and uh, on the backs and say, gee, look what a nice job we've done of what used to be a low-income neighborhood. But the low-income people, the human beings, are out on their own looking for uh, affordable rental in a universe in which, a country in which we have this drastic shortage of low-income rental. Mm-hmm. Now, what, could you maybe explain how race enters into it? Because I know it's that uh, there's a, a lot of racialization that's associated with this deterioration. Yes, I argue that poverty in Canada uh, and in the United States has increasingly over time, particularly the last 30 or 40 years, become spatially concentrated and become racialized. In the United States, we know, of course, that uh, uh, slavery, the treatment of African Americans, is a distinguishing characteristic of America generally. But here in Canada, we find similar sorts of fun- phenomena. Uh, racialized people are disproportionately represented amongst those who are poor. Here in Winnipeg, it's Aboriginal people. Uh, most of the poor in Winnipeg, to take Winnipeg as the example, are not Aboriginal, but a much higher proportion of Aboriginal people are poor than the proportion of the population at large. And public housing tends to be the place into which governments, uh, for good reasons or bad, governments put those people who are out of down on their luck, who have no place else to go. And so over time, public housing becomes a repository for those at the lowest point in their lives. And disproportionately, these tend to be Aboriginal people here in Winnipeg or African Canadians in Halifax, where where I looked at Uniac Square, a public housing project in the north end of, of Halifax, or in many big centres, newcomers who have recently uh, arrived, Regent Park in Toronto, um, when they do a newsletter in Regent Park in Toronto, they have to translate it into more than 50 mm. languages. So these low-income areas are increasingly racialized areas as well. So it sounds like the, this neoliberal <clears throat> this neoliberal program amplifies uh, a, a social exclusion that was already there. I think that's exactly the case. Uh, uh, th- there is a social exclusion that exists. And as you, you we could we could respond to that adequately if we use the state in a social democratic fashion, 
but we would have to use public investment as a tool to improve the circumstances of low-income people. Could you break that down for us? What would have to happen? At the, what do you see would be necessary at the federal, provincial, and municipal level in order to, to make this happen, to make uh, uh, these public housing facilities good places to live? Well, at the federal level, we desperately need a national housing strategy. The feds uh, housing is a provincial responsibility, but it is the feds who have the dollars, and we really ought to have a national housing strategy. Uh, in the case of public housing, uh, we ought to be doing what the NDP government in Manitoba has done, which is to put public dollars into the renovation of existing public housing units so that at least we can maintain those units that we that we have rather than bulldoze them. So it's interesting that the provincial government here has extended the life of existing public housing projects, while in most other jurisdictions they have destroyed public housing projects in an environment in which we already have a shortage of low-income rental. But I argue that within those public housing projects, where you have a high proportion of racialized poverty, uh, what what needs to happen is a community development strategy that engages the people who live there and that responds to their to their articulated needs. And that's the kind of thing that we've been working at for the last five years in Lord Selkirk Park in the north end of Winnipeg. And, you know, progress, the the kind of poverty that exists in Canada today in urban centers is very deeply entrenched and complex, and there are no quick and easy solutions. So in Lord Selkirk Park, we are making progress, but it's a long-term kind of thing. But the, the solution is the combination of community development strategies from the bottom up and public investment from the top down. And we could move forward over a generation in public housing projects and in low-income areas more generally if we were to do that. Well, Jim Silver, I want to thank you very much for joining us and uh, sharing your insights with us on this very uh, important uh, national problem. Thank you for joining us on Alert. Thanks very much, Michael. And that was Jim Silver. He is a professor at the University of Winnipeg and uh, author of the book Good Places to Live, Poverty and Public Housing in Canada, now available in the bookstores. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is a Weapon. And this weekend marks the 95th anniversary of the Easter Rising in Ireland. And to mark that anniversary, a whole bunch of really great songs to start the Wolf Tones with Foggy Dew. As down the Glen on Easter morn to a city fair old I Squadrons passed me by. No pipes did hum, no battle drum did sound its loud tattoo. But the angelus bell or the liffy swell rang out in the foggy dew. Right proudly high over Dublin town, they flung out the flag of war. Was better to die neath an Irish sky than a Tsuvler or Sodel bar. And from the plains of Royal Mead, strong men came hurrying through. 
while Britannia's Huns with their long-range guns sailed in through the foggy dew. Small nations might be free, but their lonely graves are by Suvla's waves on the fringe of the great North Sea. Oh, had they died by Pierce's side or fought with Calhoun, their names we keep where the Fenians sleep beneath the shroud of the foggy dew. Oh, the bravest fell, and the requiem bell rang mournfully and clear. For those who died at Easter tide in the springtime of the year. While the world gazed with deep amaze at those fearless men, but few who bore the fight that the freedom's light might shine through the foggy dew. Back through the glen I rode again, my heart with grief was sore. For I parted with those valiant men that I'll never see no Oh, then tell me, Sean O'Farrell, tell me why you hurry so. Hush me, Buckle, hush and listen, and his cheeks were all aglow. I bear orders from the captain, get you ready quick and soon. For the pikes must be together by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon. For the pikes must be together by the rising of the moon. Oh, then tell me, Sean O'Farrell, where the gathering is to be. In the old spot by the river, right well known to you and me. One word more for signal token, whistle up the marching tune. With your pike upon your shoulder by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon, by the rising of the moon. With your pike upon your shoulder by the rising of the moon. Out of many a mud wall cabin, eyes were watching through the night. Many a manly heart was throbbing for the coming morning light. Murmurs ran along the valleys like the banshee's lonely croon. And a thousand pikes were flashing by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon, by the rising of the moon. 
And a thousand pikes are flashing by the rising of the moon. There beside the singing river that dark mass of men was seen. Far above their shining weapons hung their own beloved green. Dead to every foe and traitor, forward strike the marching tune. And our army buys for freedom, tis the rising of the moon. I was born in the Dublin street where the lyre drums the beat And the loving English feet walked all over us And every single night when we down would come home tight He'd invite the neighbours out with this chorus Come out, shiver like a hands, come out and fight me like a man Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders uh, How the RA made you run like Galloway From the green and lovely lanes of Hillshanville Come tell us how you slew them all Arabs two by two Like Zulus they had spears, a bow and arrows How brave you faced one, a witcher, sixteen pound a gun And you frightened them, damn natives to the marrow Come out, shiver like a tans, come out and fight me like a man Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders How the RA made you run like Callaway From the green and lovely lanes of Kilishanbo Come let us hear you tell how you slandered great Parnell When you taught him well and truly persecuted What are the sneers and jeers that you loudly let us hear When our leaders of 16th were executed Come out, shiver like a Come out and fight me like a man Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders How the IRA made you run like Callaway From the green and lovely lanes of Kilishanbo that was the Wolf Tones with Come Out to Your Black and Tans, and before that, the Clancy Brothers with the classic Rising of the Moon. Before that, the Wolf Tones again singing the Foggy Dew. Next, we're going to have Sinead O'Connor singing a wonderful song by Patrick Pierce, Oro She the Bahawelia, and what it's about is homecoming to Ireland. I was once at a Clancy Brothers concert when I was a kid, and when they started to sing this, the whole audience got up and sang it with them, and I didn't know what they were talking about. It. Here is one of the most beautiful songs of Irish music, I think. Again, Oro She the Bahawelia. <laughs> Now Irish men, I pray attend And listen to these words I tell For I sing no lay from a bygone day But of brave young lads we all knew well Young lads that die, that freedom's light Might shine so bright across the land for no braver men has Ireland seen than O'Hara, you 
in the Cretan sands. Young Irish men in Ulster born, deprived of freedom, work and hope, oppressed by ruthless racist laws that grind men down beneath the yoke. And when the bloodhounds came at night to terror strike across the land, with their tanks and guns Shot poor men's sons O'Hara, Hughes, McCretion, son And in the hell of the H-block cell Where tyrants strive to break men's wills And boots and bars leave lifelong scars these brave men's spirits ne'er did yield. The words of Christ then came to mind, who would give up his life for his fellow man. And the volunteers, without dread or fear, were O'Hara, Hughes, McCretion, Sam. For three score days these men they lay Under Margaret Thatcher's tyranny And British churchmen came to say That no clergymen their souls could free But far and wide with tears and pride Their story was told in distant lands so your voices raise And we'll sing in praise Of O'Hara, Hughes, McCretion, Sands Now brave men die And slick men lie And weak men turn their heads away But short is the hour of those in power who truth and the rights of man betray. For the fight will go on and will not be done while man is unfree in this fair land. And in freedom's days we will sing in praise of O'Hara, Hughes, McCretion, Sands.
That was Sinead O'Connor with Oro Shalabaha Welia. And before that, Mick Maloney with a song about D-Block, O'Hara, Hughes, McCreesh, and Sands. And that's it for this week, folks. Happy 95th anniversary of the Irish Revolution. Well, that's our show. Thank you for being with us. If you'd like to hear our program again, go to our website, canadiandimension.com, and select Alert. You can leave us a message at alert at canadiandimension.com. We're also podcast at rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.